It's Rachel. So I, uh, I'm flying solo today. And I had a really awesome conversation with composer and uh, Indian singer Rina Esmail. And we talked about sort of the differences between Western and uh, Indian singing and music notation. Uh, she was trained in the States and, and, you know, pretty much, you know, raised here. So it's pretty cool to have this conversation with her. Enjoy. Yeah, I want to know, so I was, as I was reading and, and listening to some of, of your work, I was, I, I mean, so Indian music is fascinating to me. Yeah. It's fascinating because it is, it's exactly as you said, it is so different than anything that I do. Mm-hmm. Like I have never saw, and one piece that I saw on your, on your site, um, that I listened to, I thought it was so interesting because she's a Western singer, clearly yeah. singing in Hindi. Oh yeah, 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 and, Annie, yeah. And I mean, she she did it very, very well. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, for, what do I know? But yeah. like, I mean, yeah, she yeah, sounded yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> but as I I was thinking about, it, I'm like, I wonder how much of this like was just such a stretch, like yeah. such a stretch because you know because of the tonality and the language being like shifted basically almost an octave lower. Yeah, you know, yeah, just yeah. In the normal speech patterns and like right, like yeah. Yeah. No, she's um, she's amazing, and she's like definitely someone who will go with me anywhere. And basically, anything that I write, I write for Annie first. Um, mm-hmm. And so she, I mean, even like the, the first time I wanted to kind of uh, think about this opera or something, she she was the person who sang that first aria yeah. and who did all of that. And whatever language she she sings in, she sounds like a native of that language. So yeah. yeah um, but she, um, the way that I do that is like with these audio guides. So basically, I take. Um, I, I, I will record myself singing every little bit of, mm-hmm. of the piece and then I'll give it to her. She'll learn it. And like, that's how it works. So basically it's, it's interesting because it kind of illuminates this idea of like Indian pedagogy versus Western pedagogy, mm-hmm. which is like with Western music, we need to see it. You know, we need to kind of like see whatever we can see is whatever we are, we can do. Right. Yes. And so, um, with Indian music, it's like whatever we can hear is what we can do. And so the nice thing is that now that we have recording ability and all this kind of stuff, I'm able to, to really, uh, uh, harness them both. So she has a score that has all the notes on it, but then she also has the recording of me singing it where she gets kind of the style of it, you know? Yes. So then she, and the thing is, I never want people to go so far out of their own tradition. I never want them to be like, you know, um, yeah, like to feel like, oh, I have to be an Indian singer to sing this piece. It's like, if you're an opera singer, come to it with that. If you're an Indian singer, come to it with that, you know? And so um, she's singing within her own tradition, but then just the way the words are and the way the, the sounds kind of conglomerate together, you know, um, makes her sound just a little bit more Indian. Yes. So, yeah. Like, so for me, so an example sort of in my own experience, the spiritual. Yeah. Some people shouldn't shouldn't do it. Do you know what I mean? Some people mm-hmm. shouldn't do it because either you have the spirit or you don't. Huh. Interesting. I, yeah, yeah. And it can be really painful for me to hear someone who shouldn't... Like, who was it? There was a very famous person, opera singer, who recorded 
and it may have also somebody I'm trying to remember who did it, but I probably shouldn't say it out loud anyway. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, there are some people who have recorded like Broadway tunes and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and spirituals, and it's like no, no, yeah, because we all come from traditions and we have gifts and we have abilities with specific things, mm-hmm. you know. And stretching is important, yes. Yeah. But if you can't really do it. Please just don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like I have, I have, I feel that way, and and then I'm feel like a complete elitist and like like who are you like to say that like we again like people need to have their own experience and 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 grow and and sing and perform and do whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you find like what I found really fascinating about that piece and you were saying that that this that Annie was singing um and so beautifully uh it it felt like a bridge. Yeah. Does that make sense? Well, and it is, I mean, it's a bridge for me because, of course, my training, I was not ever trained as a Western uh, singer. So my tr- my in- my si- vocal training is all Indian, but then my musical training is all Western. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because, you know, the, the, like what a Western singer brings to these pieces is the fact that they can... Um, they don't necessarily need to follow a drone, right? So an Indian singer, like, if you take the drone out, they're going to be completely lost. They'll lose their sense of, you know, the, yeah, where, just where they are, right? Whereas a Western singer won't. And so in that sense, the pieces are designed for a Western singer to sing. However, they're designed to be sung with an Indian vocal technique. Yes. So, so because of that, it is just kind of halfway in between. And based on who sings it, the piece will sound completely different. So... I would be fascinated to hear that piece sung by an Indian singer, but it sounds like that might not be possible because there is no drone. Right, well, so, so this is what's interesting is that I have this Indian singer that I work with. So she's she's technically my teacher, but we also kind of exchange lessons. So basically, I, she's been teaching me Indian vocal technique, and I've been teaching her Western music theory and ear training. Wow, that's cool. And so now mm-hmm. she's coming, and because, I mean, she's an amazingly accomplished uh, Hindustani singer. Her name is um, Saili Oak. And so she um, will, she's just starting to learn how to um, uh, work without a drone and work, you know, to kind of modulate and do basic kind of sight singing, and you know, because they don't even have the concept of sight singing. I mean, it's all done by ear and by, you know, just, yeah. So, so it's, it's interesting because right now the only Indian singers who can sing it are people who are Western musically trained, who have an Indian voice. And so I'm one of those people and I'm certainly not the, like I'm not a professional Hindustani singer, right? But I am um, someone who has both of those trainings, right? But I think Saili is going to eventually be someone who can sing it with a completely Indian technique once she gets comfortable enough to let go of the drone. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I build the repertoire and then I try to bring the people to it who, you know, are, are interested in singing it for some reason. Because, you know, who this piece draws is actually, I found there's there's a number of people who approach me about this piece. One is people who are Indian heritage, like myself, who've sure. grown up in the States, who, you know, are studying Western music and Western voice and they want to sing something like on their, you know, maybe their undergrads, grads want to sing something on their recitals that, you know, honor who honors, they are. Honors their exactly. heritage. That's and they, right. they hear that this is in Hindi and they probably speak Hindi at home. And so they're thinking, oh my gosh, I can sing in Hindi. Like when can I sing with a Western vocal technique in Hindi without having to learn a different musical style? So that's kind of cool. It honors their Western training and it honors their culture. So yeah. there's that. There's also actually a group of people who are, who 
who's like either their significant other or someone in their family or one of their close friends or someone is Indian and they that person might not be a musician but they feel like they want to access that culture in a way that makes sense to their sensibility as a musician and so they kind of are able to uh, access that through singing a a piece of mine. So it also connects me to these really interesting people who come to my music for this reason that it means something to them personally. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Something really thought they're, you know, they're thoughtful people. Yeah. You know, who want to have something of meaning within, you know, more than just, um, you know, well, this is really pretty. Right. Moms did a nice job. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And, and I mean, of course it's like for me, I just personally, you know, if you're going to build a career as a musician, you want to surround yourself by a community of people who, you know, really understands and supports your vision and you can kind of understand and support their vision. And, you know, one of the nicest things that, that any musician has ever said to me, and a couple people have said this to me is like, your music is my voice. Like your music is my expressive voice. So what I want to say can be said through your music what a compliment. right and it's it to me I'm like that is the highest honor you know when you are expressing helping someone else express what's really in their soul through the notes that you write I mean that's what it means to be a composer absolutely you know absolutely yeah. well, that's such a beautiful tribute like um I was thinking about this I, so I was thinking about questions and things that I thought would be interesting to talk about I was like let's talk about music and then I was like silence yeah. <laughs> because sometimes you just feel like, why should we talk about it? Like, shouldn't we just, you know, like, just, isn't the whole point of it that you don't have to talk about it? Right, right. <laughs> it speaks on its own. And yet how but, much composers get asked to talk about their music? Oh my goodness. I'm getting better at talking about my music. Oh my gosh, but it's, it's uh, Yeah, but also for me, it's like, because it's a dual cultural context, I yes. always feel like I'm explaining the part that people don't get to them, you know? So yes. I actually, sometimes when I have... Um, pieces that are done in both India and in America, I have different sets of program notes because it's like people need different contexts to appreciate the piece. So explain to me then, like, like take a piece of yours and talk to me about context. Like, how would it be different? Yeah, so like, for instance, I have this piano piece that was commissioned by this pianist who, um, like, he commissioned it for a tour of India basically but he's an American pianist and um, he also plays it in America so I gave him these two sets of notes so it's based in this rag which is like a scale you know a scale with personality that's what I like to call rags mm-hmm. and so um, so basically the western musicians would not understand what a rag is and how a rag works and, and also what the implication is of a rag because like it's not like we have scales that are like A, B, C, D, E, F, G they have rags that have these, these really um, beautiful names and the name kind of evokes something. Like, for mm. instance, like, Rag Malhar is, like, the bringer of rain. You sing this rag when you want rain to come, you know? Basant is a uh, spring. It's about the season of spring, you know? So so just these just these ideas of what the context is of the rag and what it's trying to evoke are things that, you know, Western uh, performers or uh, musicians aren't going to understand. And then on the other hand, the Indian musicians aren't necessarily going to understand how what the context is of the instruments and, like, how something fits into the piano. And also, when you modulate or when you do all that, like, how does that, how does that even work or they what does that to, mean? It needs to have a name for them. Yeah. And it needs to just, it, it, it needs to be explained a little bit more because that's just not something that, you know, when, when you are taking, when you're moving the the tonal center, you're really destabilizing it in a way that in Western music, we get very stressed out when we're in the same tonality for a long time. Yes. We just want to modulate. They, I mean, as a singer... In um, Indian music, you will pick your key and you will sing in that key for pretty much your entire career. Wow. So you are just in that key, that's it, you know? 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's like my key is A. That's the key I'm going to sing in for my entire adult life. <laughs> and what determines that key? Is it just where it sits in your voice? Yeah. It's where it sits in your voice. So when, when you're, I think like when you're an adult and sometimes it does change for, from, I think from the time you're a child to when you kind of mature. Sure. And then also sometimes it changes if you're singing a different style of piece that sits a little higher or lower or something. But for like straight Western or for straight Hindustani classical music, you would sing in that same tone. And you kind of determine and it might be something where okay if you're you sick one day it might go a little bit lower or something like that but it's certainly not like you modulate within the context of a piece so wow. yeah there was one thing just following up on this last bit that we were talking about yeah i as, as you were talking about a rag rag yeah rag yeah um it made me think about you know early um modes yeah right like exactly it's kind of modal you and know, how modes, like, if you were in A minor, right, A minor is, is I, of course I can't remember it right now, but it had it had a, a mood attached a, yeah, to it, a, right? Well, the alien mode, Aeolian, but yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, and rag, you know, to me, what rag is, is, uh, and this, um, what is this guy's name? Uh, Paul Henry Lang wrote this book, Music and Western Civilization, which to me is like one of the most interesting histor- histories of Western music to read, because I think it starts like kind of pre- I mean, all these things that are written down that we know or whatever. And it talks about, you know, like um, Byzantine music and all this and kind of like the meeting of Eastern and Western music and, and how it used to be more similar. And then it kind of diverged, you know, and basically like we got notation in Western music and then Western music diverged in this this crazy way away from almost all other types of music in the world. Yeah. And so what was interesting before is like, we have this concept of a scale, which is just like, okay, all these notes that are in an order. And what that came from is there would be certain phrases that would be sung and, you know, whatever. If someone was in a certain, you know, musical area, they would sing these different phrases. And then at some point, someone took all those notes and were like, okay, what are the individual notes that are being sung? And that got made into a scale, right? But really it comes from these little phrases and where we still see a vestige of that is in the minor scale, right? Hmm. Because it's like, there's all this weird stuff at the top of the scale. Like, ah, oh, sometimes it's sharp, six seven, seven sometimes it's right, that, sometimes right. it's the middle thing and so so but how do we know what's right and wrong to sing in a minor scale like if you just told someone improvise in a minor scale or if you would listen to a piece there'd be a certain thing of where okay something sounds wrong here if it wasn't right. exactly right so just that little thing is every rock like it all works like that, where you just have the sense of how something goes within a rag and things can be, you know, like a major third going up and a minor third going down, or there's just many different ways that you navigate it, but it's navigated in this very intuitive way. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds so holistic. Yeah, and, and the thing is that Indian music gets very deep inside you because it's like you have to know it because you're improvising, right? You, you can't, so you, you have to just really, really understand what you're doing. And I think to me, oh yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, yeah. so how is it like jazz? So it's a lot like jazz, and in, in the sense that I, I say this with almost no knowledge of jazz. I know more, more about Hindustani music than I do about jazz, but I... I know enough about it to say that the improvisation patterns are similar, except that in jazz, you're improvising over a chord progression and in Hindustani music, you're improvising over a rhythmic cycle. So there's not a sense of harmony, but there is a sense of like that timing that has to kind of be hit at a certain time, you know? And so actually um, jazz and Hindustani musicians, there's a lot of crossover. There's, there's mm-hmm. many people because you can like kind of throw a Hindustani musician into that situation and they will pretty much figure out how it works. It's the classical to classical that's completely different because of the um notation yeah the notation the teaching tradition you know the fact that 
I mean, I have um, people who there's I have a few just like students who I teach basic like Hindustani vocals to, and um, they come from Western tradition. So they'll be asking me all these questions like, okay, what are the rules of this? How does this work? And that's a very Western approach, you know, that they probably learned as a, a Western singer, you know, to like just really get a sense of how something works. But to me, like learning Indian music is like as if someone just throws you into like a dark cave and you, you can't see any light and you just kind of have to feel your way around the wall, right? Oh and you're just like feeling. And so then eventually you get this gradation. So when you first are there, you know, you just like run and then you like hit your head against something that you didn't know was there. And you're like, oh, this is a big thing that I have to go around now. Okay, I get that. And then eventually it's like, you're just feeling your way along the rock and you're thinking, oh, here's a little dip. Like, oh, here's this little area. Oh, now if I just like move in this way, there's this whole other room in this cave, you know? Yeah. And it's like, just by feeling, you develop a, a sense of, the shape of what it is and then you're improvising within that shape and when you know that shape and every crevice of it so well you have full freedom you know mm -hmm. but then it's interesting because then you'll change rag and then all the things are in different places and then you've got to just start that process of navigating again so every time you change rag does yeah. it um do, it does it starts it all over like, um, yeah, I mean, you, you will eventually develop a methodology for learning to improvise within a rag. So mm -hmm. like, say you, I mean, like a professional Hindustani singer, if they're learning a rag, they don't know, they're going to just be able to grasp it much faster. But, but it is like, there are different, you know, notes, and there are different ways that you navigate through those notes, you know, because mm -hmm. some rags, there are two rags, which will have exactly the same notes, but then just one might emphasize this one note more than the other, or one might have a certain phrase that the other one doesn't mm -hmm. or you know it's uh, or one might have all its uh, melodies landing on this particular note versus another note and so you know it's like to to talk about it it seems so kind of straightforward to talk about it but when you're actually really um in it in it <laughs> yeah it's like it's just this sense of, like I said, you have to do it by feeling because there's no other way. And there's this there's this thing that my teacher's teacher, Ashwini Pide, says where she's like, something about it just smells funny. If it's not, you know, like if, if you do a phrase that isn't right, it's just like, it just smells funny. You know, it's not, and what is it about it? Oh, let's like, let's not go into all these rules, but uh, my senses tell me it's not right, you know? And in a way, I mean, that's very much like language. Because, I mean, we don't learn language. The best way to learn language isn't from, like, reading rules in books. It's from just speaking that language and eventually things sound right and wrong to you. Mm -hmm. So it's really that same process. Mm -hmm. Is that ever influenced by, by lyric? Um, you know, the rag and lyric actually have a very different relationship to one okay. another. And actually, this is a, a good uh, way to segue into lyrics in Hindustani music. Because, I mean... One of the things that's so interesting about the difference of like a, the, the concert culture is usually you won't have, you know, when you go to hear a vocal recital, like they'll give you all the words to, yes. you know, and in Hindustani music, that that is never the case. You will never get the words. And so the question is, how do you know what they're singing yes, if you can't you know. sing? And so, I mean, one thing is that because they're improvising, what they're improvising on is usually four lines of text, right? And so... And they'll maybe do a few words and then repeat those over and over. So just through repetition, you're going to get it. But actually, Hindustani music and even uh, popular, like Bollywood music, sets text slightly differently in the sense that you you will never kind of, every consonant will get its own space, right? And so, like, for instance, I just set this text, which actually isn't in Hindi. It's in, it's in um, it's a, what is it called? Pallavi, which is like an ancient Zoroastrian language. Um, but, yeah, it, it, but it's, it's, it's close enough that it, it kind of follows these rules as well, where the first line, okay, so it's, the, the translation is all humankind, but the word is hamag mardom. And it actually says all humankind? Yeah, that's, that's what it means in... in, in uh, Interesting. In, uh, so it's not Pallavi. like man or woman, it's, it's human. You know, the translation, I think, 
I, you know, I'm not, I'm not actually sure. Like, maybe it does say all mankind. Yeah, I just yeah. would be fascinated if that's actually... Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'd have to look into that. <laughs> but, but regardless, so it's a, so hamag margom. And so it's like basically two syllables, two syllables. But when you said it, it's hamag maradoma. Right, Man, so everything has diphthongs. Yeah, exactly, and and you would just you would set it as like mar dom. You'd set it as four syllables instead of two syllables, right? And it's because mar dom, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, that makes the text intelligible because there's never these consonants that are kind of lumped together because it's always con- like it's just continuous. Yeah. Like, the, the you know, there aren't, it doesn't feel like there's, fra- phrasing is totally different. Yes, because also just the idea of declamation and stuff is very different because, you know, you won't have, I mean, they try to say like, okay, for, for ah vowels and like those kind of open vowels, you want to have um, these longer uh, melismas and stuff on them. But you would never say like, oh, this is a strong uh, thing, so we're going to have it on the strong beat. This is a weak syllable, so we're going to have it on the weak beat. That is just, there's a much broader sense of that. And the reason for it is that the rhythm is always explicit. There's always a drummer, a tabla player playing with you, right? Mm-hmm. So your job is not to be the preserver of rhythm. Your job is to go against the rhythm and to provide a counterpoint to the rhythm. Mm-hmm. So the text then, because it's repeated so many times and because you're kind of providing a rhythmic counterpoint, um, you can play with that text a lot. So you can, you, it, it, you're not having to preserve it. So what is the purpose of text? So it's, it's interesting because a lot of the text of Hindustani music is this very old text. And um, even, you know, new uh, writers who write it, it's kind of in this, like, I feel like it's like the Shakespearean version of Hindi, you know, where it's like mm-hmm. from that time. And um, it's it's almost, it's like a little bit less, how would I say this? It's almost like... Um, setting the mass or something in a certain oh, way where it's like you know even if you're not uh, religious or whatever you know there, there's this uh this context of what the mass is and the, you know what those latin vowels are and what that kind of stuff is and so you you set this old text as a way to kind of pay homage to the tradition right and yeah. so it's not necessarily that there are these very specific texts that you set, but it is there are are all in the specific style and it's interesting because a lot of them are like like women waiting for their lovers to come back. And I mean, I can't say that it's the most uh, feminist thing. And the more you start looking into what you're singing, you're like, oh my God. Like I kept on singing this, uh, this line, Sasa Nanadia. And I was like, it's such an interesting line. So I finally asked my teacher, like, what does this mean? And she was like, oh, it's like your mother-in-law and sister-in-law. And it's basically this idea of like, don't let your mother-in-law and sister-in-law like hear what you're doing. And like, they have full control over your life. Like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> like this is uh, why am I singing about this? this is terrible. But um, but I think everyone kind of takes it with a grain of salt in the same way that you know we take so many um, you know things that older composers have set with a grain of salt as we're singing them. You know, sure, yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. So much of at least, well, definitely in opera, mm-hmm. I would say that's the case because there's there, there's there's so much like chauvinistic you know they, oh I yeah find, i find in song it's a little bit different like yeah um i haven't found many songs that are specifically like sexist or interesting i, I find most song to be sort of atmospheric hmm. and you know sort of lovers talking to each other but i often find that in song it's it's two equal partners 
Yeah. Often. Like, yeah, yeah. And, it's be- and, and I wonder if that's because of the conversation that you're having with the instrument. Like, the voice and the piano or the voice and, you know, whatever it is that, that you're playing with. Yeah. Um, well, and maybe also because it doesn't have to have a plot line. It doesn't have to play into absolutely. whatever stereotypes. there's no plot. But are there plots in these these? They're a little less plot. I mean, it's more just, it is more atmospheric in the sense of like, oh, I'm here waiting for my lover. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, you know. And then there's a lot that are actually very religious in the sense of like, oh, Krishna goes and like, you know, makes mischief in the alleyways or does stuff like that. There's right. there are those kind of things as well. So it is very... I mean, I will say that, like, Hindustani music is tied to the Hindu religion in the same way that, like, up until... I don't know, like in the classical and Baroque eras, I think, and even someone into the Romantic era, um, it was uh, Western music was tied to the Christian religion. You know? Yes, absolutely. And so it is very much the same thing. So you do get a real view into what the culture is of Hinduism by mm-hmm. singing that, that which is sense. which is of course very interesting because I'm not Hindu. So yeah. it's like I I feel like I can understand that culture through music in a way that I, I wouldn't have access to it if I weren't a musician. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and would you even have necessarily have context for, um, well, well, this is an interesting idea. So, so you have, you have the, you have the Hindu, Hindi, Hindi music. Uh, uh Hindustani. Yeah. Hindustani yeah, music. Yeah. And the writing of it could potentially be something that has, um, how, how do I say this? Um, you you might have preconceived ideas yeah about how you should feel about it. like when i hear christian music mm-hmm. you know i'm predisposed to feel a certain way right. because of my own experience exactly like and because of your experience you have access but not necessarily that same kind of conditioning right yes right that, yeah seem- well and it's like my relationship with hinduism is so purely musical and what even what I learn about Hinduism like the Hindu gods and stuff I mean I learn about it because of what I need to do through music right and so in a way I feel like I I have a very um I don't know just a kind of wonderful relationship to Hinduism that's that's not you know because typically like if you're Hindu it's like your family has this this whole kind of set of beliefs and rituals and stuff that you do and of course my family not only because we're not Hindu but because we're two different religions Mm. that we don't practice a single religion in the family so everyone is kind of you know free to do whatever they want to do and I I, America exactly it's (laughs) like America's the only place that that can happen right Mm. and so I think um I feel very much that way about Hinduism like I have my own way in and in a way I, I both as an outside observer and as someone who is like you know, so deeply involved with Hinduism through this music because I'm singing about Krishna like every single day, yeah. right? So it's like, I, I just have a very unique perspective on what it is and I feel like it's constantly growing and I'm constantly learning. And at the same time, like so many times my Hindu friends will say things to me like, oh, you know how we do this puja or whatever. And I'm like, you know, I think you I might think actually, that I know. Yeah. I don't actually know how you do that puja. Like, right, I, I just do a really know. good I, a job yeah. of pretending like I know, but I don't. <laughs> but but it was interesting because, I mean, even when I lived in India, you know, I had a friend who was from a very devout um, Hindu family. And so, you know, he knew how to go to these temples and do all these rituals wow. and stuff. And so we he would just take me with him and I would just kind of experience what it was like to be a Hindu, you know, worshiping as a Hindu. Because, I mean, no one knew all the better that I wasn't Hindu. I mean, I look like I could be, right? Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting to have an insight into that culture as someone who 
immediately seemed like an insider to people, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. yeah. It goes back to sort of that idea of, you know, people's um, expectations based on whatever it is that they see yeah. you know, about us and how we, exactly. you know, we sort of build, we build up what, what people are, what we think they are. Exactly. And but yeah. And then with music, how do you, it, how do you take something that has this, you know, sort of stereotype or, you know, something that is, um, you want it to be a certain way or whatever, or it's always been this way or, Mm -hmm. or your job is this. Right. And how do you just say like, well, I loved how you described that with teaching, um, Allegro Sonata. Sonata Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was like, here's, here's all of it. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Exactly. Well, and I mean, when I, I mean, and I've taught a lot of theory and teaching theory is something I love. I just, it's one of my favorite things. I think. Wait, did you, did you, at the pre-college at MSM or were you at? Yeah, pre-college at MSM. Yeah, yeah, Because my, one of my, one of my dearest friends is the theory professor. I mean, he's head of the theory department at, at MSM. Oh wait, who is it? Rico. Oh, Rico. I know you who know he Ryko? is, but I don't. I I've never met him, but he's yeah. he he has a reputation that precedes him everywhere. Yeah, he goes, yeah. So. We um, yeah, we we did a recording a few years ago. Oh wow! Yeah, he was my first theory teacher, poor soul. That is crazy! <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's super awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um. No. Yeah. I I was in the pre college, but I mean, I I taught there. I taught at Yale, and that's it was so like great. you know, I I I could see myself in like another life just being a high school theory teacher because yeah. to me, like that's like the holy grail of theory because you're teaching people these fundamental mentals that really you know if you could learn it in high school how much that would save you oh yeah seriously and i i do i teach i I teach sometimes privately uh high school kids to like to pass the ap music theory test and stuff i and I, i just love it and so i think um when i start with my classes i would sometimes do a class where i would teach them the theory of theory Right. Hmm. And so I would draw like a squiggle on the board and I'm like, okay, tell me stuff about the squiggle. And then I draw like a different squiggle on the board. And I'm like, tell me how these two squiggles are related to one another. And so we start understanding how theory like how is even you, created. Yeah. Right. How do you correlate it? Yeah. Because you? I think sometimes, especially when you're that young, you feel like there are these just universal rules that all pieces must relate to Sonata Allegro form. And I mean, they don't have to, but it's like, if you can see how the theory was created and I talk about how theory is a retrospective art. Theory is not an art that's, you don't create the theory and the creation the music it's like you look back at the music and then create the theory based on what kind of happened and what yeah. the context is yeah. and so i think that's very true um you know and, and that, that that people need to understand that theory has its very specific place yeah you know, you know yeah. one of my favorite memories reading so i've been reading <laughs> like as slow as molasses this book <laughs> about brahms Oh, because um, I find him fascinating. Wait, is it the Jan Swafford? Yes. Oh, it's. A, I was just having a conversation like an hour ago with someone else about the same it's biography. It's a great biography. I need to read it. I'm getting it tomorrow. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, slow as molasses. Right. <laughs> but I pick it up, and every once, you know, every once in a while, and I'm like, I just love this book. Wow. Like reading his. Well, because it's just so thorough. Yeah. And and there's not a lot of like conjecture. Because that's yeah. my big beef with biographies. It's yeah. like, I'm sure he felt very despondent. Like, I'm like, right. how do you know? Yeah, you know exactly. Did he I write know. it in his journal? Like, stop telling me how he felt. Right. Anyway. Yeah. But there was this moment in it that I love so much. When he was six years old, his parents found him and he was like trying to develop notation. Huh. Yeah. And, and his parents were like, you know... Johnny, what are you, what are you doing, man? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? He's like, he's like, I've got to. It's in me. Right, right. I have to get it out. Yeah. Like, and I need to figure out how to get it out. Yeah. And I mean, talk about gene, right, right, genius, right. Just like, and then amazing, like how it's manifesting. Yeah. And you know, this is someone who had no context. You know, had, right. had not been exposed. To, and but his his response to this apparently was, oh, phew. 
Just like relief. Right. Like, it's already been done. Yes. Okay, good. I, I can feel learn that. What's, what's already, you know. Like so often. Yeah, already. exactly. Now, I feel that very often when um, I see someone do an idea really well that I wanted to do. And I'm like, okay, if this is being done really well somewhere, like the world has taken care of this. And like I can breathe a sigh of relief, you know? Yeah. I mean, if someone's doing it like kind of in a mediocre way, then it stresses me out. But if someone's doing a super, super excellent job of it, I'm like... That's been taken care of. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. yeah. I don't have to do that. Yeah, exactly. I feel the same way. And yeah. I feel the same way actually about singing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we, we talked earlier about Queen of the Night and, you know, I joke a lot of time on this, like, like I'm, I'm not a lyric caller tour. So right. like those high flippy notes, like that's just not me. Like, right. I can, I can get, I can streamline the voice and it can be, and it's beautiful, but it's never going to be the bell. It just isn't. Right. It's not what my voice is. Like my voice is more like a train. Like it's just, it's big. <laughs> yeah. It's got, you know, some meat to it. Right, right. Um. And accepting that is is a process, right? Yeah. Because, yes, of course. Because you have, you know, just like you have these ideas about what is beauty, you have these ideas about what is beautiful singing right. in Western culture. Exactly. And it's so much easier, I think, you know, to win a competition with, you know, Sempre Libera or with, mm-hmm. you know, Queen of the Night or with, you know, something that shows... Um, you know, you know, that sort of virtuosic light kind of, you know, flurry. Right, right. <laughs> and, um, you know, versus those heavy, but without too much weight, you know, intense, dramatic, like, I'm probably going to die after I sing this. Instead of I'm going to go. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, Wait, what was I? There was a reason I brought that up. Oh, um, um, being okay with the beauty of voice. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, accepting, accepting what you are. Yeah. Exactly. And, and what your voice is in whatever form. Yeah. And I mean, I've thought about this even as a composer because there is, like I was saying before, this whole idea of, of like finding your voice and like, what is your voice? As composers, we're always on the search for our voice. And the idea is like, sometimes when you find your voice, it's not what you want it to be but that's what it is you know right and like you and if you don't accept it and if you just keep on fighting against it and saying no I want my voice to be this like because I mean for for me I will say and of course you know the minute I say this like it like limits all this stuff my voice is a chamber music voice for sure Mm. like the, the, the things that I want to express can be best expressed in the context of chamber music. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I've been writing orchestral and choral music. I wrote four pieces for orchestra and three of them also had choir in them last year. And wow. so, I mean, it's like, I've just been getting these big ensemble commissions. And of course, I mean, I hey, love writing for these absolutely. things, you know, it's You'll great. It. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not going to say no when these, these amazing orchestras call me up and are like, you know, we want to work with you. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be able to work with them. But there is a limitation when, in big ensembles that there isn't in these smaller ensembles. And so, you know, I, I mean, I would love to be able to say, oh, my voice is this, you know, Mahlerian orchestra style voice, because that sounds so sexy and so cool. But like, mm-hmm. for me, I mean, the duo, the piano trio, the solo instrument piece, that's where my ideas are at their most potent, you know? And so just knowing that and accepting that about myself doesn't mean that I can't write bigger pieces, but it does mean that, you know, okay, I know what I'm about. I know what I'm I'm working towards. I know what I value, you yeah, know? Uh, definitely. It's yeah. interesting. I, it, um, Because I grew up in a home that's... N- this appreciates music, but it's like the Beatles, you know, mm-hmm. I grew up in a home that like really likes the Beatles and some jazz Yeah, and occasionally would put on a classical recording, but, but usually, you know, orchestral and in, mm-hmm. in nature. Um, and I've always just had this big voice Yeah, and I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And you know, you go to school and they're like, well, there's something in there. Yeah. 
Yeah. But it takes a long time. Yeah. For well, especially for a of... singer, because you have to grow up. Yeah. You know, it's like a violinist. I think you can get that dexterity in your fingers and whatever when you're very young. But mm-hmm. I mean, your voice changes when you're a singer. You can't mm-hmm. just, if you're five years old, how can you know if you're going to be a Wagnerian opera yeah, singer? Exactly. You know? Well, what's interesting is that I had a teacher when I was 12 who said that I would be a spinto. Huh. Yeah. Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then she said, and you need to learn another instrument. Uh, to help balance you. Right. And it was great advice. Yeah. You know, but I didn't even know what a spinto was. Right. I didn't, and I didn't have any context for that. And when I listened to, you know, these beautiful, lighter sopranos sing, I'm like, oh, I want to sound like that. Yeah. I want to be the belle of the ball. Right, right, you right. You know, it's like, I don't want to be the princess that no one really wants to marry. Right. You know? <laughs> well, and <laughs> see, again, that brings up these in, these issues of, like, voice type. Like, literally, the highness or lowness of your voice in relation to what role you play and what your dramatic role is, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, for me, I write almost exclusively for mezzo. You know, that's yeah. really what my thing is, because to me, that's... A, I think that's more where my voice is. Even though if I were to sing like in an operatic style, I think I would have a higher voice yes, than that. You would. But um, and for me, my Indian voice sits in that register. Well, it also makes sense because mezzo's sort of meat and potatoes, exactly, you know, is is in the mostly spoken range. Exactly, and yeah. and you know, according to the chart that I was looking at, you were showing like yeah, you know, up to an E. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. That's it. You yeah, know? and that's you know, I mean, like an F. F to maybe a G, mm-hmm. you know, as a, for mezzo rep, if it's if it's chamber music, right, right. You, know, you don't really go above that right. much, exactly. At, you know, if you don't if you don't have to, exactly, because you want to hear that that richness, that color, right. Know, that and then it takes luster. it out. Like with Indian music, you can't if it's too high, you just won't be able to hear that that meatiness that and, and that almost that buzziness that's mm-hmm. in the Indian voice. And so for me, like to, to write, I mean, and I've definitely transposed things for sopranos because they've like asked for them to be transposed. But I always kind of work from a place of mezzo and then work my way around mm-hmm. there. But then it's interesting because like okay, if I write an opera, the mezzo role will be what is usually the soprano role right? but that's great because yeah. mezzos are always happy to not just be carmen or exactly. an old woman exactly you, you know? know the maid yeah and so i think we need to think about those things too is expanding the roles that we write in operas the roles that we have in ballet the role you know like all mm. these 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 really old art forms that value a certain physical attribute to being the person who gets the lead role you know mm-hmm. because we are saying like oh you know okay if you're if you're this weight then you can play this if you're this height then you can play this if you know and like mm-hmm. if you're this gender or race or whatever you know it's a and, little less so i feel in opera but that is changing dramatically right. you know and pretty quickly you know since the onset of met, the met in hd right which has right. also affected i think how we hear singing yeah, exactly. Well, and I mean, even even in chamber music, I feel like now that we have these halls that are like acoustically primed to, you know, be able to hear things, we don't only need the high instruments to play the melody all the time. Like you yeah. can write a really great, like, I don't know, viola melody that could really sound well, you know, yeah. and, and um, it wouldn't be lost in the texture the way that it might have before. Or even with recording, you know, like when you record something, you can really change the levels and work on Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Most of the time people hear your work, it will be on a recording, you know? Yes. And so if you can kind of engineer that to be what you want, then you can have anyone playing anything. Or like, you know, it was interesting. I was listening to a piece with one of my students um, just last night and 
It was this piece that was, it was basically all these sounds that were just, if you were to take the bow of a violin and just make a stroke, like just that little sound before the rosin catches, a little thing afterwards, a little bounce, all yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the thing about it is it was, crunch yeah, exactly. All of that stuff. And it was so incredibly beautiful. Like, I mean, and it, I mean, I've heard that done really terribly a lot of times, but like this one was just incredible the way that it was done. And so I was saying that, you know, do you think this piece would work in a concert hall? And I'm like, I don't know if it would because you know you wouldn't be able to get that same close mic sound that you can get on a recording unless of course it was mic'd in the concert hall you know mm -hmm. but we have all these different um means of expression because we have so many different tools to to uh highlight those things now. absolutely i think it's such a gift um i think as a as a vocalist that studies the old italian style mm -hmm. it's actually a little bit alarming in some ways <laughs> yeah because the voice when it's acoustically balanced, mm -hmm. needs space, yeah, in order to be heard in in its in in premiere form. Mm -hmm. um, it needs space for the sound waves to actually sort of culminate into what it is. Yeah, yeah. And when you hear it, like I'll never forget one of one of my teachers, you know, several years ago said to me. You know, when you hear Birgit Nilsson on a recording, sometimes you're like, whoa, <laughs> that's <laughs> like that's intense. Yeah. Um, and he said, but in the in the opera house, you know, on the concert stage, mm -hmm. never. Mm -hmm. It just enveloped you. Yeah. And you felt all warm inside. Yeah. <laughs> like, basically. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because, because the sound needs to have a live, like, acoustic in order to be appreciated. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, and I think about that sometimes, like, the importance of live performance, um... Like last night, you know, hearing Linda sing, you know, there are certain, there's certain cutoffs. Like there were moments when her pianist, who is just Russell Ryan, amazing. This is a man who I guess she's worked with since high school. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and she would end a phrase on a piano and he would take it from her at a piano. Wow. Like, yeah. I mean, literally it was like handing, you know, mm -hmm. just handing it over. Yeah. And I just sat there in the audience, just like, you know, a little teary-eyed, like, yep, there was, there was that moment. Did anyone else see it? You know, the woman behind me with the wrapper? Yes. Right, right, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? Right. Like, how long does it take to put a cough drop in right. your mouth? <laughs> that <laughs> is a topic for an entire podcast, I think. <laughs> I mean, I... How many audience members does it take to unwrap a cough drop? That's right. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, literally, for like 20 seconds, I'm like, oh my gosh. I know. But especially when, like, when it's during a peace of mind where we're doing a live recording and the minute someone's on I'm like do you see that there are microphones in here there's a red light I know and it says on air right <laughs> like does that mean nothing <laughs> to you <laughs> oh my god but yeah no you're absolutely right that there is this um there's this beautiful collaboration that happens between people who understand each other and are able to kind of just pass these these beautiful phrases back and forth between them and you know it's just magical yeah it, and, the magic and that happens. happens i mean to me there is something about live performance that's so compelling you know and sometimes even like the recordings i get back of my work like for instance i just i just got this recording back it's like 200 singers and a chamber orchestra singing this piece that I wrote. It's a five movement piece all about like, um, just like women authors and talking about their experience as a woman. And, you know, mm. and it's, um, it's a piece where when I saw it on the page, I was like, I don't know, is this anything like who even knows? Right. But 
in the live performance, I mean, and there are certainly mistakes and stuff like that because it's a live performance and they're all non-professional singers. They were um, all at a university and then, you know, people in that community choir and stuff. So there's everything from like, you know, young people who are really going to go and become singers to people who just sing for fun, right? Mm -hmm. And, but there was such an energy of like, 200 women being on a stage in a live performance together, like singing this piece that I think a studio recording just, you know, wouldn't have just because those people are communicating something to the audience, you know? Yes. And I always think like as a singer, and, and, and like for me, as someone who's not a Western singer, I always say to the singers that I work with or the people who are writing for singers, like, you know, you, your job is to say words to people. You know, you are, that's essentially what this you're is doing. why you're here. Right? Yeah. Otherwise, I could have given it to another instrument. Exactly. It's like there are words that need to be said. There are things that need to be communicated. And it's your main job to like communicate those words. And and then, I mean, when you're focused on, on not even the words, but how they hit you, the meaning of them, you know, it. It really changes what the dynamic of the performance is. And of course, when there are people who you're speaking to, it changes the dynamic of the performance even more. Absolutely. No. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why song repertoire can be so challenging. Yeah. You know, because it's like, oh, it's just you. Mm -hmm. You know, this gets to be your experience. So pick repertoire that like means something to you and then go and stab yourself when you're done because it's like, oh, it was so sad or whatever, you know, but, but yeah, you have to, you're why do you say what you say? Yeah. You have to know. You have to know. You have to make a decision. Otherwise, you know, get off stage. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and even like as a composer, listening to different singers interpret my work is one of the most interesting things because Mm -hmm. I mean... Every singer comes to this rep for a different reason, and they are drawn to it for a specific reason, and they they want to perform it, and you can see in them what they're getting out of it, you know? And Mm -hmm. I had this one singer... It's a young singer. Uh, she's auditioning for graduate school programs and wanted to perform one of my pieces, at, you know, as part of her audition rep. And so she sent me a video and it was so beautiful. And I mean, again, I mean, first of all, anyone who is not Indian and sings in Hindi, there's a part, there's a special place in my soul for them yeah. because there's a part of me that for one moment believes that they speak Hindi. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this person who I didn't think spoke Hindi speaks Hindi. And it's like, <laughs> as if they like understand what's in the depths of your soul, you know? Yeah. And so to me, like, I think just one of the nicest things about writing in Hindi is just hearing people sing it like makes me so happy on just a personal level but so besides that she was singing this piece that that's about I mean it's basically saying you know when when your shoe uh when you like it sounds ridiculous when you translate it into English but when your shoe bites when you have like a a a blister that's created by your shoe yes yeah (laughs) when the shoe bites that's not how it goes um but when when you're when that's hurting you when your shoe is hurting you then you're um you're focused on that pain but then when the shoe stops hurting when the shoe stops biting then um you lose all sense of time, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and it's just a very short thing that says that in Hindi. And um, she captured this desolate spirit of it because mm-hmm. it can be, it's a very kind of light song. It's in a minor kind of rag, but but it's it's quite light. But she, for her, it was this really deep, you know, meaty thing exploring that element of it. And I could tell even by just the way she, um, you know, articulated the phrases, what that meant to her and how deeply she was feeling it. And I mean, certainly it's like, I'm not in her head and I don't know what her experience is, but I could just really see it in the way that she did the song versus other people who have, you know, concentrated more on the metaphor of the shoe than on actually what it means, you know? So... 
Yeah, it's wonderful. And you learn so much about your own work by learning how people interpret it. Definitely. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. Totally. Any any final remarks? Final remarks. Um no, I think I pretty much said it all, That's I think. Awesome. Yeah. This is so cool. Yeah, it no, was really cool really, to talk really to you. Fun. I'm glad. Yeah. yeah, this is really fun for me too. 